justice symbols are for you to have. If you don't have one, I encourage you uh, to take one. We um, read from the ESV. Um, Dora, I'm not saying that's the only way. That's not what I'm saying, but that's uh, what we do um, read from. As you probably guessed, justice is a major theme uh, this morning. And uh, the truth is that the justice system and justice in our own lives can be a little sticky and a little messy. Uh, the way that justice is rolled out, the way that justice comes to us, and uh, the way that sometimes we are trapped in the unfairness of a broken world. And uh, that comes to light a little bit of, one, uh, how justice sometimes uh, brought on other people is not done the best way. Uh, it was brought to my attention that uh, uh, a few years ago a judge in Colorado um, gave this kind of sentencing uh, for a certain kind of crime, and that was uh, people listening to their music too loud. Uh, so if people listened to their music too loud, what he would assign them in sentencing was this. They had to listen to his CD collection uh, for an hour a week uh, for, I think it was six months, uh, and uh, they had to listen to it as loud as they possibly could uh, during the day. And his collection, um, composed of Barry Manilow, was the majority of the music that he had to listen to. So, yeah, sometimes the justice that people do is not the best. And sometimes the justice that people receive, they don't want to take it very well. For example, um, Penelope Soto, um, was being arraigned uh, for a drug charge, and uh, uh, she uh, got a $5,000 bail, and uh, the judge was Hispanic. Uh, so as she left uh, the arraignment, uh, she uh, decided to say adios to the judge. And uh, needs to say, judge didn't like that very much. You don't kind of joke like that uh, to judges. And he said, um, now it's going to be $10,000 bail. And then uh, she's like, what? And then she gave him the middle finger at that point in time. And the judge said, that's going to be 30 days in jail uh, for contempt of court. So sometimes people don't receive justice very well either. And lastly, sometimes justice just isn't fair. Sometimes we receive punishments and receive things that people give us that just does not fit what we've done. And it's just unjust. We have a history of that in the United States, especially uh, when it comes to civil rights. One famous one is the Scottsboro Boys Trial in 1931 in Alabama, where um, uh, nine boys, or young men, aged 13 to 20, were arrested for a brawl that was on a train. And two women accused these uh, nine boys, white women, of um, raping them. And they were African-American um, young men. And uh, in Alabama, sitting in jail, there were riots. There was calling for bringing them out of jail and lynching. Um, the court case happened very fast. Uh, grand jury charges in just a few days. And uh, the death sentence was assigned to every single one of these young men, aged 13 to 20. Needs to say the trial went up the courts all the way to the Supreme Court until it came, they told to retry it again. But these young men, half of them sat in jail for six years until finally they were acquitted. And the other half still had to spend their full term in jail until they were pardoned much later. Injustice is also in this world and in this place. Well, we not, might be in a courtroom. We not, might not face that kind of um, justice. Uh, and 
Many times we feel like we have punishments uh, that we want to dole out on people that have done things to us. Sometimes we feel like we are wrongly treated in jobs and relationships, so we want fairness in our life. Many times we don't face the justice that we deserve, that we don't want to take it even though we are in the wrong, so we run from justice and try to hide from what um, needs to come upon us. And sometimes we dole out justice to other people in life in ways that they do not deserve it. Being unfair and unjust to our kids, to our co-workers, to our family members. It might not be the court setting of justice we talk about, but it might be the everyday life setting of fairness and justice. So today, what we're going to see is this. We are going to see a trial. We are going to see a court. And we are going to see three characters in this court and how they deal with the issue of justice. And the question I want to answer for this to you this morning is how do we deal with justice in a world that many times takes justice and runs over it, skews it, screws it up? How do we look at justice in the right way And how do these three characters help us see it in the right way? Let's read the scripture together, shall we? I'm just going to center on the first two stories. The story of Pilate, I'm not going to center on today, uh, but I'm going to center on these other two. So I'm just going to read these um, first two to you um, this morning. And they led Jesus to the high priest, and all the chief priests and the elders and the scribes came together. And Peter had followed him at a distance, right into the courtyard of the high priest. And he was sitting with the guards and and warming himself at the fire. Now the chief priests and the whole council were seeking testimony against Jesus to put him to death. But they found none. For many bore false witness against him, but their testimony did not agree. And some stood up and bore false witness against him, saying, We heard him say, I will destroy the temple that is made with hands, and in three days I will build another not made with hands. Yet even about, their testi- their, about this, their testimony did not agree. And the high priest stood up in the midst and asked Jesus, Have you no answer to make? What is it that these men testify against you? But he remained silent and made no answer. Again, the high priest asked him, Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed? And Jesus said, I am. And you will see the Son of Man, seated at the right hand of power, and coming with the clouds of heaven. And the high priest tore his garments and said, What further witness do we need? You have heard his blasphemy. What is your decision? And they all condemned him as deserving death. And some began to spit on him. And to cover his face and to strike him, saying to him, Prophesy! And the guards received him with blows. And as Peter was below in the courtyard, one of the servant girls of the high priest came. And seeing Peter warming himself, she looked at him and said, You also were the the Nazarene Jesus. But he denied it, saying, I neither know nor understand what you mean. And he went out into the gateway, and the rooster crowed. And the servant girl saw him and began... Uh, began again to say to the bystanders, This man is one of them. But again he denied it. And after a little while, the bystanders again said to Peter, Certainly you are one of them, for you are a Galilean. 
But he began to invoke a curse on himself and to swear. I do not know this man of whom you speak. And immediately the rooster crowed a second time. And Peter remembered how Jesus had said to him, Before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. And he broke down and wept. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, this is your word. This is the passion. Lord, let it resonate with us. Let it be something that seeks into our lives that we might know what justice, true justice, is about. We pray these things in your Son's name. Amen. Well, if you're just joining us, we are going through the book of Mark as a church plant. Uh, we just started in March as a church meeting for worship. And uh, so what we decided to do is go through the whole book of Mark until we get uh, to Labor Day, which is just a couple de- um, weeks away. And some of you ask me, why the book of Mark for your church? And why go through it so fast? Well, it kind of fits our name, Emmaus Road. Um, and how it fits it is this, is that I think we live in a place, in a region, um, where ourselves or friends that we know know the stories of Jesus, know kind of the basics of who Jesus is, of history, and some of the Bible stories. But many of us, when we really encounter, like we did on the Emmaus Road, these two biases, we don't know who the resurrected Jesus is. We don't really know who is Jesus and what is his purpose. And so I wanted to go through Mark to do this. So that we might know as a church, that we might know people checking out this for the first time, who Jesus is. Let's go to see what the gospel says. What is his purpose? And like I've said um, in the beginning of Mark, the first eight chapters were answering this question. Who is Jesus? And the last eight chapters are, what is his purpose? What is he here to do? And I think what's interesting about the passion of this, especially this story, These two ideas come together, where we both see the character of who Jesus is and also what his purpose is. His Christology, meaning what it means for him to be God's son, and also um, what his purpose is to suffer. So let's look at this together. First, let's look at the first character, the Sanhedrin. Okay? And... uh, so you look with me, who is this group, the Sanhedrin? Okay, actually Sanhedrin is not mentioned here, but um, these elders and scribes and chief priests are. And the Sanhedrin was a group of about 71 individuals that were kind of the religious and political leaders um, of Israel. And it might not have been all of them that were there uh, to convene the court. They needed at least 21 to convene the court, so there might have been that many. Uh, and they decided to meet at the chief priest's home. And the thing is, uh, they were in a kind of precarious situation, the Sanhedrin, because they were kind of mediating um, kind of the Jewish world with the Roman world. Yeah, they had religious authority and power, but their political power was muted because Rome was ruling at that time. So the ability for them to dole out punishments and to even give capital punishment, meaning um, sending someone to death, was limited. And some would argue they didn't even have that right at all. And here, they're trying to exert their authority, their power, especially against an individual that they think is tearing down their institution and their power. 
Jesus, who seemed to roll into town a week ago, start challenging things in the temple, saying things that went against what they believed in and what they stood for. And they were like, okay, this guy is trouble. We suppose that he's lawless, that he blasphemes, that he challenges power, he talks revolutionary talk. He deserves death. So because of his lawlessness, because of his blasphemy, he deserves to be sentenced to death. Well, there is a lot of problems here. The first of the problem is, did they even have the right to sentence them to death? Let's say they did, okay? So by the law, what they had to do to be able to sentence someone to death is this. They couldn't prejudge, you know, just like in America, innocent before proven guilty. That was kind of uh, the ethos of Jewish law. And the thing is, uh, what does it show in this passage that they did? They prejudged. They, um, from the very beginning, they were wanting to put Jesus to death. Already they had the idea, we want him to die, even before this trial begins. So that's one problem with this whole proceeding, this trial. The next problem is that uh, you're supposed to do it during the day. And capital punishment or capital trials, um, which is death trials, usually had to take two days. Um, so, first of all, they don't do it during the day. They do it at night. And second is they don't do it over two days. They do it over just one night. And that was also part of Jewish law. They're supposed to do it that way. The next is they weren't supposed to have false witnesses. They were supposed to have witnesses that were true and reliable and did not disagree. But again, we see in this passage, we have false witnesses that disagreed. So there is a great kind of perplexity here and injustice that is going on in this trial. This Sanhedrin, this group that wants to live by the law, that wants to make sure that Jesus lives by the law, is breaking the law themselves. And they don't even see their unfairness. They are blinded in their injustice because of their extreme hatred for who Jesus is. And the silliness of the trial is even more profound in what you see in this text. It's full of this kind of irony that shows this thing is a joke to begin with. See here, the Sanhedrin believes that they are upholding the law. But in fact, as we read this, Jesus is the one that really is. We see that this is a trial against Jesus. But as Jesus talks to them about him sitting out at the right hand of the Father, kind of as the judge, the trial is not against Jesus, but it's actually against them. And then it goes on where they tell him to prophesy, to tell them who he is as he's blindfolded. And the irony here is they tell him to prophesy when Jesus three times before this early in the gospel has already prophesied that this very thing was going to happen. That he was going to be beaten by them. That he was going to be falsely accused by them. That he was going to be sentenced to death by them. So while they're joking, you can't even prophesy. Jesus has already prophesied about it. But this is the greatest irony of them all, of this whole thing. And you're going to see it here. Um, Please look with me. And uh, I'm going to look at verse 62. 
uh, verse 61 first. And here the chief high priest asks him, Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed? There's something that we don't see always if we, we don't see kind of Greek grammar is that this um, is not really framed as a question, even though the ESV and other put it in a question form, but it's more kind of a rhetorical statement. Okay? And the great irony is this. Nowhere in the Bible, in the book of Mark, sorry, the book of Mark in this gospel, does any human call Jesus the Son of God, except here. Do you see the irony? This guy isn't asking a question. He's making a statement. Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed? Blessed is a circumlocution for God. It's a name for God. Are you the Son of God? The person that is calling Jesus the Son of God, the very one that is acknowledging and saying the Son of God, is not his disciples, is not other humans, but it's the priest accusing him of it. Out of the very midst of the high priest's mouth, he's acknowledging the Christology and the nature of Jesus himself. Do you see this? Isn't it crazy? That he can't even see what he's acknowledging about Jesus, but he is saying it. He is saying, this is the Son of God. And this is where the extreme anger comes from. Many people acknowledged the Messiah at that time. Many people went around that said they were Messiah. Other rabbis and high priests would call others Messiahs. But when someone would call themselves the Son of God, that was crazy talk. And here Jesus, responding to the high priest and what he says about Jesus, saying, yeah, you're right. You've asked the question. You've said the statement. Are you the Son of God? Yes, I am. And this is where he tears his clothes. Um, <laughs> in the heat of battle, in the heat of conflict in your own life, um, how many times do you guys say, you know what? I'm right. You're right. I'm being unfair. I'm being unjust. You know what? Right? You're right, Aaron. You know as the middle of our arguments or wherever my you're you're right. You know, I'm totally being unfair in this situation. I'm being totally unjust to you. I shouldn't be working so much. I should be spending some more time with the kids. You're right and I'm wrong. You guys do that in the middle of arguments? I you I'm you guys are more pious than I am, so maybe, you know, you just right there in the midst of the argument you just admit I am wrong, you are right. We don't do it often, do we? In fact, in the middle of conflicts, in the middle of fights, we are saying, I'm right, and you're wrong. And it, we don't even see the blindness sometimes we have in the ways that we're treating our loved ones, our coworkers, others around us in the midst of our, our conflict. We don't see the way that we have led to this situation where there's anger and frustration because of injustice that we've given to them. We dole out justice just like the Sanhedrin does. We do things and break rules and think we're all high and mighty because of what we say to others, not seeing the blindness of our own injustice and unfairness to others. How does this happen? How does it happen? 
James 4 is very good. I love this passage. Jesus' brother. He says, where do quarrels and fights come from? Where do they arise from? They arise from the selfish desires within us. And James even goes on, I think he points back to what happened here at the Sanhedrin. He goes so far that you want to kill because you don't get what you really want. And this is maybe the same things that we say. You know, I want time for myself. Aaron, listen, I want time for myself. I don't have time for the kids. I want to be able to go for my bike ride right now. Or I just want time to be able to watch TV. I want time to be able to spend money where I want to spend money. I want to be able to do this or that. And many times, these selfish desires within us, we will do anything to those that get in our way. Cutting them off, being unfair, being unjust to get what we want. And this is how we, what we say to others that get in our way when we really want this thing. You know, everything would be just fine. If you stop doing X or Y, give me my rights. Give me my ability to have this. And if you get in my way to do that, I'm going to cut you off. I'm going to say things that are unfair. I'm going to do things that are not right. And this is what I would say to this, what I, I see in the passage. The Sanhedrin is bringing a trial against Jesus. But the truth is that Jesus is bringing the trial to them. Don't you see that the real issue is not me, but it's you. It's your power, the way you act, the way you do things, the selfish desires that you want to rule this place in the wrong way and lord it over others that needs to be stopped. Many times, in our conflicts, in our fights, in the arguments that we have against others, the problem is not them. The trial is not against them. But the trial is against us. And the selfish desires that war in our heart, that only can be resolved when Jesus fills those desires, rather than trying to get it our way and hurt others in the midst of trying to get it. Does that make sense? I hope you guys, I hope I'm making sense there. Okay. Good. So, the first injustice. We are blind to seeing the injustice and the unfairness we bring to others because of selfish desires within us. And we see this through the Sanhedrin. Well, in the midst of this trial going on, in the house of the high priest, upstairs or wherever it might be in the house, there is another trial going on, is there not? A trial in a different court. In fact, a courtyard, right? The courtyard of Peter. You can imagine, um, maybe you've seen those kind of Middle Eastern homes where there's that fountain or a fireplace in the middle of a home, and those, you know, it's surround, the house is surrounded, and you can see upstairs in the rooms and it's kind of open. That would kind of be the courtyard that we're picturing. And here is Peter, just very close to the action. And he is being tried too. <laughs> but I love Mark that he always makes a foil. You know what a foil is? Foil is like the opposite that brings light to the main character or, you know, kind of that, uh, what's Othello's foil in 
Shakespeare on it. Iago, is that it? Iago, Othello. So, so you kind of, there's these foils. And the thing is, there's foils throughout Mark. The Sanhedrin was a foil at one time. Um, the young, rich young ruler was a foil. Um, and now we have Peter as the foil. A sandwich, a comparison of, you know, the, the jam and the peanut butter, you know, um, coming together, you know, basically to, to point out how good the peanut butter is over the jam. That's my personal preference. But, you know, so again, how Jesus reacts in the right way and Peter does not. Okay? So we have Jesus tried by these group of powerful men, the rulers, and he stands there in silence, taking it, taking the blows, and then responding in the right way. And then we have Peter. Who is trying him? Not 21 men, but a servant girl. A servant girl. And even in front of a servant girl, he's like, oh, oh no, no, no. Oh, yeah, yeah. You know, he can't even stand out. He's got to say something. He keeps opening his mouth. And then it comes again. In fact, uh, as it, the second time it comes, and uh, the servant girl saw him and began again to say to the bystanders, this man is one of them. But again, he denied it. The word deny is in the imperfect. And uh, really w- what it means is um, to just kind of let off steam or to just go off. And there's a, there's a textual variant actually here where uh, they say that uh, Peter went off that they could pick up his dialect. So that's where they say he's a Galilean. So you can imagine someone coming from two rivers, right? And uh, speaking, uh, you know, and they're like, oh, you're from two rivers, right? So this same kind of way. Oh, you, you've got to be with Jesus because you speak in that kind of way. So here, Jesus is beaten by guards and Peter is warming himself by the guards. Jesus loses his life and takes to the cross. And Peter shuns the cross to save his life now. Jesus acknowledges who God is and his authority and calls himself the Son of God. And Peter swears by God that he knows nothing of the very Son of God. You know, we might not be in front of a full court like the Sanhedrin, but we are like Peter that many times we face everyday encounters in the courtyard. Peter is being called out for his injustice, for the way he's supposed to act. But what does he really do? He lies about it. He lies about who he really is, what he did, who he followed. He's called out by others, but you are this. You did do this. You deserve justice because you followed along with this Jesus. But he says, no, I am not. I will not face this. I do not deserve this. And he lies. You know, throughout our days and our lives, we're called out at times. (laughs) I think, uh, sorry, I'm picking on Aaron tonight, but our spouse does a good, my spouse does a good job of calling me out. She knows how, what I say on Sunday morning, and then she knows what I say on Monday afternoon. Ah, there's some duplicity there, Dan, you know? There's some hypocrisy. And she calls me out. And what is our response when we get called out for our true nature? For when we are being unjust, when we do something wrong, when we are unfair... We might lie about it. Oh, that's, oh, that's not really how it was. 
We might minimize the problem. Oh, it's not as big as you think it is. I was just acting this way in a certain situation. Maybe we blame someone else. You know, the reason I acted that way is because that person did this or that person did that. Or we deflect. When we are exposed for who we are, we don't want to look stupid, do we? We don't want people to really see our true nature. We say it's not worth it to really come clean and tell people how it really is. When I read about Peter, sometimes I think this. What if Peter actually did tell the truth? You know, what if I was in this situation or someone that I knew was in this situation? Maybe if you were in this situation, you would stand up for what was right, wouldn't you? You would tell the truth in front of a servant girl? You'd say, oh, yeah, I'm with him. This is why I think the gospel is so rich and why Jesus said, I will build my rock upon Peter. Who is the most brash and noble and mighty of all the disciples that would be with Jesus to the very end? Who was it? Peter. But even Peter, the bold, the passionate, the righteous, the loyal, even he cannot stand up when his true character is gone against. Peter is not enough. Peter needed someone else to step into the place he could not. He needed Jesus to be his salvation. He needed Jesus to be his rock. He needed Jesus to take the justice that he could not take himself. Please hear me. When Jesus is our value, when Jesus is our foundation, when Jesus is our righteousness, our justification, when people come against us and say, you know what, you're a hypocrite. You know what, you said that here in your line. You know, you treated me unfairly here and unjustly. Instead of running to our own righteousness, and running to our own integrity, and running to our own, I'm the good person, no one would ever want to see me like that, we can boldly say, you're right. I did lie. I did treat you unfairly. I was wrong in what I said to you. And I can say it boldly, because I know this. My righteousness doesn't come from looking good around others. My righteousness comes from the one that took it for me, Jesus Christ. He is my value. He is my justification. He is my righteousness. When He is that, we can take criticism, we can take the hypocrisy people see in our lives and say, you're right. And then, like Peter, we can weep and run to the cross and say, Jesus, change me. Let me be one that is true and righteous and good. And it's only when we see that we can really do the heart work upon ourselves. Does that make sense? I hope that makes sense. Okay. I'm glad David's here. David Kerfactor's here. Because we were talking about this earlier. And I, um, many of you think this next topic will be tangential. But I don't think, I, I like to do apologetics in the sermon. So I, this isn't tangential. It's something that fits really with the passage. 
And it has to do with something that has been very popular in our culture recently. And uh, there is an author, Reza Aslan, who has gotten a lot of press lately. Um, he uh, has a New York Times bestseller book, and the book is called Zealot, and it's called um, Studying the Historical Jesus. And um, the argument is not new. It's an argument that's been around for um, quite a while in the, kind of the studying the historical Jesus movement um, with Dominic Cross and other kind of names in academia. And the argument looks like this, and I want to be fair when I make the argument, okay? So it doesn't look like it's the pastor just belittling someone that has this argument, and you might have it too. So I want to just challenge you this morning, though. The argument is this, that there is the biblical Jesus that we read here, and then there's the historical Jesus, the real Jesus, okay? What can we know about the real Jesus? Reza Aslan and other scholars would say this. We can only know a couple things. One, Jesus was a Jew. And two, he died upon the cross. All this kind of biblical history and all those things, that is, that is not true. In fact, it's not true because of this. What happened was that these disciples, these followers of Jesus, were so depressed because Jesus died that they made up this cosmic story of him being God's son and raising from the dead. And the truth is that that isn't Jewish knowledge at all. Jews don't believe in God having a son or even the idea of someone raising from the dead. So obviously what happened is many, many years later after Jesus, when Jews were exposed to Hellenistic thought throughout the Roman world, they decided to make up this story about Jesus. And that's how we get the Gospels and these kind of stories, because they're made up by guys that were depressed because Jesus died. Okay? This is an argument that I, I heard in college in my New Testament classes, and uh, maybe you've heard those arguments too. It's very popular, and this book has gained a lot of popularity. I want to talk about that specifically, and something that Aslan really misses, and new scholarship that he does not see, and also this passage speaks to it. Okay? One is um, the idea that the Son of God, Jesus being the Son of God, is a Hellenistic idea and not a Jewish idea. Well, in fact, the Son of God was a Jewish idea that was very popular in the first century. There's a book called Enoch, and there's also um, the Essene culture that we're actually exploring in Jewish culture what the Son of God was. And it was an idea that was popular in the first century of Judaism. So this very thing that Mark is talking about is an idea that has been around, and you could easily be the high priest acknowledging this is the Son of God, and this is a Christology, early on saying that Jesus actually is the Son of God, that this was actually historical fact. Okay? The next thing is this, that um, Aslan, I always say that not until 70 or 80 um, AD that these ideas of a high Christology and, and Jesus being the Son of God and actually um, part of the Trinity, that that was foreign to Judaism, and, and the church really never believed that till much later. But actually in Philippians, a book that was written much earlier than the Gospels, um, the church was already singing creeds and hymns that acknowledged the high character of Jesus very soon after Jesus' death. Philippians 2 talks about this, that every knee shall bow, not to God, but to Jesus himself. And that was talked about in Isaiah. And, and also, that uh, this is the biggest point. And this is where I think scholars stumble the most. 
please, I know I'm giving a very apologetic and scholar kind of message. Track with me a little bit more, because these are good arguments, and you might hear this and you might believe this. I think scholars and people through history get trapped by this one thought. Jesus didn't win by dying on the cross. In fact, he lost. Jesus was a revolutionary that was really supposed to overthrow Rome. But he didn't do it. In fact, he died a very miserable death and humiliating death upon the cross. And Aslan omits this. He says, you know what? Jesus lost. He wanted to cause a revolution, a new kingdom to be established, but he didn't do it. But Aslan does not get the gospel, does he? He doesn't get the very good news. Hear me. The good news is this. For Jesus to establish a kingdom that would throw upside down the injustice of this world, he had to take on the injustice of this world upon himself. Our sin, our putting him upon the cross, so that the injustice of this world would be done. He had to die. He had to die upon a cross, a humiliating death, because true victory came upon him taking the sins of the world upon himself, not him smiting us all and saying, down with Rome. Only then could our hearts be remade new. It's not government that needs to be renewed. It's our hearts that need to. And he did that by dying upon the cross and taking our sins ourselves. Aslan does not see the very nature of the gospel, the very character that Jesus had to take. For Jesus to be God, he also had to suffer upon the cross. Last point, as I land the plane. I don't, again, I don't know your stories, but I have talked to some of you and the things that you face in life. If you live long enough, you get junk from other people. <laughs> people do things unjust to you. People hurt you. Jobs fire you when you don't deserve it. They promise things and they don't deliver. Spouses make vows to you upon the altar and then they don't do it. Friends say they'll be loyal to you and then they spit on you at times. You name it, there is injustice that you face. There is unfairness. And you cry out, and I cry out at times, this is not fair, what happened to me. How do you deal with the injustice of the world that comes upon you? The injustice that others come to you? How do you love them? How do you bear with them? How do you not play those things over in your head, over and over again, those conversations, or not just live a bitter life because something someone did to you? How do you do that? How do you live the peace and joy that God promises when you faced injustice and unfairness? Please look to this trial. Look to what happened to Jesus. Here is the creator of the universe. The creator of you and me, condemned to death by his creation. Is there any greater injustice? 
Is there any greater unfairness than Jesus would be tried unfairly and unjustly and take our sins that he did not deserve upon himself? You cry out and I cry out, fairness, justice, I deserve this, I deserve that. Do you know what we deserve? (laughs) You know what we really deserve? We don't deserve this life. We don't deserve grace. We don't deserve beauty. We don't deserve anything in life. We deserve death because of what we have done to God. But the good news is this. He took the injustice of this world upon himself so that we might have the grace of him and have life to the fullest. It is that good news that then lets you look at the unfairness that has been given to you by others and by this world and say, I can bear with it. I can deal with it because I know what God has done for me, taking the injustice of this world. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, we live in a skewed world that many times does not dole out fairness. We don't get to get what we deserve many times. But I am thankful that you have made the world right, that you are renewing it, that you know what injustice looks like yourself, and that when you come, you will judge the living and the dead. And you will put those things that are wrong and make them right. We pray these things in your Son's name. Amen.